On a number of previous occasions, I have had the great pleasure and honor of speaking with best-selling author Patrick K. O'Donnell. I spoke with him about his fascinating book, Washington's Immortals, the untold story of an elite regiment who changed the course of the revolution. I've spoken to him about his book, First Seals, the untold story of the forging of America's most elite unit. They Dared Return, the true story of Jewish spies behind the lines in Nazi Germany. The Brenner Assignment, the untold story of the most daring spy mission of World War II. And uh, there is a through line to all four of those books, and he has many more books to his credit. But in all of those books I just listed are the words, the untold story. (laughs) And uh, that is one of the things Patrick O'Donnell specializes in, uncovering important stories that are largely unknown, at least to the general public. And uh, he has done that once again with a book that is sure to be a blockbuster bestseller, an important book that really every American should have on their shelves, a book called The Unknowns, the untold story of America's unknown soldier and World War I's most decorated heroes who brought him home. This is the story of the tomb of the unknown soldier and the process by which that unknown soldier's remains were selected and brought home and uh, and of course are, are housed at Arlington National Cemetery in one of the most hallowed places in, in all of America. And uh, it is a fascinating story and never before told with such meticulous detail. And it is not only the story of that unknown soldier from World War I, but also the story of the so-called body bearers who were chosen, honored, to bring the remains of the unknown soldier uh, back to America. Uh, A sprawling story. It took a number of years for Patrick O'Donnell to write this story, uh, to complete this book, and it is before the public now. And I'm very honored to speak with Patrick O'Donnell about this book, again called The Unknowns, uh, published by Atlantic Monthly Press. Patrick O'Donnell, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Great to be back, my friend. I, I always enjoy your your cogent and thorough interviews uh, that really capture the essence of the books that I write. Well, thank you for saying so. I appreciate that. In the uh, acknowledgments of the book, you say, this story found me in 2010. Could you please explain to our listeners what you mean by that? This story found me in 2010. Every book that I've ever written has found me in one way or another, and it's not a cliche. It's it, I was, um, for Washington's Immortals, when you interviewed me for that, for instance, we were on a walk in the battlefield in, in uh, Brooklyn, and I found a rusted old sign that said, Here lie 256 Continental Soldiers, Maryland Heroes. And it was my curiosity that wanted to know who those men were and what the story was. And it was an untold story. Much like this book, um, I was given the honor of being a guide for the, uh, the Marines of the Wounded Warrior Regiment and the 5th Marines. Many of these men I actually fought with in the Battle of Fallujah, and I wrote a book called We Were One, Shoulder to Shoulder of the Marines that Took Fallujah. And we went back to France to, to examine the lore of the Corps, as they call it, and this is where the Marines fought some of their greatest battles in World War I. They saved Paris uh, uh, from a major German driver, an offensive on Paris. 
at a place called Bella Wood. And they made an epic stand there. And as we were walking the shell craters of Bella Wood, this is 100 years later, the, the war is still alive in Bella Wood. There's actually, um, there's actually mustard gas shells that are still embedded in some of these trees. And as we were walking through this, this area, many of the men that I was with, they had lost their legs and arms um, in the former Ottoman Empire, which was later turned you know, into Iraq and Syria, where I almost lost my whole life. We were, you know, we were still being impacted by that war. And it was on Hill 142 that our other guide mentioned to me that Ernest A. Jansen was one of, was the, was the Marine Corps' first Medal of Honor recipient. And he, he made a bayonet charge against five German machine gunners that were setting up their machine guns and they were about to overrun Hill 142. And I thought, well, that's an incredible story. And then he mentioned that Jansen was also a body bearer for the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And what a body bearer is is somebody that actually is a pallbearer or carries the casket. And he was selected by General Pershing, and that immediately stoked my interest. I wanted to know who the other men were. The Unknowns tells all of their stories, as well as the man that selected the Unknown Soldier and the story of the, the tomb itself and the the, the uh, process of selecting the soldier and bringing him home. And within that story, it tells the entire story of the AEF through the eyes of the most decorated enlisted men of the war that were hand-selected by General Pershing personally. And what's so extraordinary is each one of their stories fits into the larger narrative of what America did during World War I, you know, such as the Navy, for instance, the Marine Corps or the Army, and then within each of those branches, the specializations, the cavalry, the um, combat engineers, field artillery. And these are all stories that are, in many cases, Medal of Honor recipients of extraordinary courage and sacrifice uh, during the Great War. And I felt it was really important to tell the story on the 100th anniversary of a war that remade our world. It, but it's a war that's largely forgotten, and especially in America, where it was bookended between the Civil War and World War II. But it's a war that is profound in its consequences, and it, it affects our lives today. You just look at Syria. You look at the um, so many ways the war changed the world, and, um, and that's why it's important. Hmm. As a matter of fact, you are echoing the dedication of the book, which is To the Doughboys, America's Unknown Generation Who Changed Our World. And you're touching on a couple of different things there, and one, of course, is that term doughboys that many present-day Americans don't even really understand, uh, and the fact that we are talking about a largely unknown generation and a generation that changed the world. There's a whole lot wrapped up in those few words of dedication. Absolutely. That was the, uh, the intent. It was really to get people to think about our past and about that generation of Americans that, that really changed the world. That, but nobody really, I, I find that very few people recognize that. And um, I, my great hope is that the unknowns shed light 
on the generation of Americans that did the impossible in many ways. I mean, they they were they were fighting with, in some cases, civil war tactics in um, a modern war um, with heavy artillery and machine guns, as well as deadly poison gas. The emergence of the airplane, all of these kind of come together in World War One, and our men have to innovate, um, and and they are able to defeat one of the greatest armies of the world at the time, the German army. Hmm. I want to talk for just a moment about the task of of writing such a story, and first of all, of just looking all the way back to the First World War. And of course, in some of your books, you've looked back even further, but, but nevertheless, it is no small matter to be looking back 100 years. Uh, explain just the sort of the scope, the dimensions of your challenge uh, in, for instance, trying to track down the stories of these eight courageous soldiers who ultimately were uh, body bearers for the uh, unknown soldier. Uh, how difficult was that uh, to, first of all, identify them and then find out more about them and, uh, and bring all of these uh, 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 riveting details uh, t- to light? What, what kind of challenge did this represent for you? This was extremely challenging. Um, most of their stories were relegated to a footnote in a, an obscure text at best. And it wasn't even a story. It was just the name of the individual. And then from there, it, you had to, to look at so many different repositories to reconstruct, not even reconstruct, but to unearth their story. And I looked at it. Let me give you an example. The first story in the book is the story from a naval gunner named James Delaney. And James' story is just absolutely extraordinary. Um, He was assigned to be a naval guard on board a merchant ship. And this is before America really had a convoy system to transport troops and munitions and materiel over over to France. So he was on a merchant ship with a, a crew of 15 or so naval gunners, and they had a, a deck gun that was bolted on board this merchant ship, and they were to protect the ship against a new threat that emerged in World War I, the U-boat. The U-boat uh, was sinking Allied ships at an extraordinary rate and was potentially uh, on the verge of starving out Great Britain from uh, sources of supplies and material. And Delaney is is sailing along in the summer of 1917 on board the merchant ship. They're alone in the Bay of Biscay, and all of a sudden they see a uh, torpedo that that barely misses the ship, and another is fired. It misses the ship as well, and the U-boat um, at this time was there was only carrying about eight or so torpedoes. They were very precious. So the U-boat commander um, immediately, who was an ace, um, had had sunk nearly 50 ships. He was very successful, surfaced his U-boat, and then decided to try to finish off the the merchant ship with his deck gun on board the U-boat. What ensued is a 
was a, a running gun battle between the U-boat and the merchant ship and Delaney's merchant ship. And they fired hundreds of rounds from the deck gun on board the Campana. And the, the U-boat also fired hundreds of rounds. And eventually, um, two or three of the shells hit the Campana, including one that was near the engine compartment. Delaney and his crew ran out of ammunition, and the captain of the Campana decided to, rather than sacrifice the men on the ship, he would sacrifice the ship itself and surrender. And what occurs here is one of the great stories, untold stories of World War One. It's If you've seen the movie Das Boat, it's similar to that. These men are captured by um, Captain Lieutenant Diekmann, who is a German officer, and also the um, who spoke perfect English. And he brought them aboard the U-boat, and they were his prisoners. And what ex- what happens next is sort of an extraordinary exchange where the captain interviews and interrogates Delaney, tries to find out information. But it's in some ways a friendly exchange. It's also an understanding of many of the things that sort of surface during the war are brought out in these conversations. But this is an example of some of the deep research that I did. I actually uncovered the German uh, sources, including Captain Diekmann's own words of what happened, um, to, to really illuminate this event from both the American perspective as well as the German perspective. And it's a complete story that really, um, they go through an extraordinary series of events. They, they are death charged. The death charge, uh, for death charge becomes um, uh, prominent at the, during this point in the war. And the U-boat is nearly uh, cracked in half by one of these explosive devices that's, that's hurled into the water. The, um, they have to go through a, a minefield, and um, you know Delaney explains how he can literally hear the chains of these mines uh, touch the hull of the U-boat. Had one of these magnetic mines touched the U-boat itself, the, the entire boat would have been destroyed immediately. Um, that's the kind of peril that they had. They also had, um, uh, they, were, they encountered what was known as a Q-ship, which was the Allies were so desperate to, to, to try to take countermeasures against the U-boats, which were sinking so many Allied ships at this point, that they would disguise a merchant ship to make it look like an innocent merchant ship. But as soon as the U-boat would surface to, to take it out with the deck gun, the hidden compartments would reveal um, artillery on board the Allied ship and fire upon the U-boat and, hope, and then the, with the hope of taking it out before the U-boat could take the merchant ship out. So these were some of the events that occurred. And, and then we follow uh, James Delaney and his, his fellow Americans into a prisoner of war camp which is a very dire situation. It's not quite a concentration camp, but they go through hard labor and they're, they're, they're really nearly starved to death. Um, Delaney makes several escapes. And this is all you know, brought out in a very readable cinematic uh, narrative. I was just um, going to say that that's a very good the war. Yeah, that's a very good way to describe it. And I believe you tell us that Delaney and his and his men, are the first American POWs to find their way onto German soil, or you say something close to that at least? 
in in terms of the Navy personnel, indeed. Um, and this is, uh, you know, what they go through is harrowing. Mm. And it just provides another perspective on World War One that we really we haven't seen. And this is this book, The Unknowns, is very immersive. It really puts you there in the the boots um, or on the deck of many of these. Uh, you know these uh, these Americans that were very highly decorated. Right. By the way, I really appreciate in this portion of of your book uh, some of the details that you share uh, about what these German submarines were like uh, at this point in time, and not only their their deadly potential, but also certain really interesting limitations uh, to what they could do. For instance, you, you, you go so far as to kind of explain the, the way in which uh, such submarines were powered and that would, it would depend on whether or not a submarine was traveling essentially on the surface uh, or if they were uh, underwater. And that would have everything to do then with how rapidly they could travel and, and, and what they had the potential to do. Can you just uh, share a little of that with our listeners? It's fascinating stuff. It is. It's not only the, the technology that was uh, of this extraordinary we- um, weapon, but also the, the creature comforts and the, or lack of, I should say, of, of those that had to endure, um, you know, being on board one of these craft. And one of the things I found really um, interesting is how they had something called U-boat sweat. That's what they called it. The the seawater would actually um, come, you know, it would, there would be it would condense inside the boat, and literally grease and oil um, from the the boat's diesel um, engines would get on everybody's bodies. These men were covered with this stuff. It would get in your in your in your coffee or in the food that you ate it was just it was an incredibly grimy environment that was cramped these men were under the ocean um you know hunting allied ships and being hunted in the process as well um you know food was scarce and it was what was interesting is you know the small details they the first thing that they did after they went aboard the campana to seize the, the craft is they raided the, the 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 food locker on board the ship, and then they took they took soap because they were so dirty from the U-boat sweat, um, and then they planted charges on board the the Campana and 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 you know, let it go to the bottom of the ocean. Hmm. I also thought that it was fascinating to read the detail about what those Americans uh, aboard the Campana did uh, just before they were boarded, namely taking some of the most important materials aboard ship uh, that they would not want to have fall into enemy hands. Explain to our listeners what they did uh, to try to uh, keep the Germans from being able to seize some of those really sensitive materials and documents. Well, they, 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 they basically put them on uh, and, and weighted bags and threw them overboard in the event to try to avoid the capture of those sensitive materials. Um, you know, the, there's... There's so much beautiful and interesting detail that the, the book uh, in that Delaney's story kind of brings out that, um, you know, it really brings you, it immerses you in, in, their, in that war, in their war. Mm. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Patrick O'Donnell about his latest book, certain to be a 
great bestseller called The Unknowns, the untold story of America's unknown soldier and World War I's most decorated heroes who brought him home. This is the story of the first unknown soldier uh, whose remains are interred at uh, Arlington National Cemetery, uh, the story of, of how this soldier's remains were selected to be the unknown soldier. And it is also the story of eight decorated uh, members of the military who were selected to be body bearers to escort the remains of the unknown soldier uh, home. One of the things you said, Mr. O'Donnell, is that uh, your book is not only about specifically what I just laid out, but in so many ways tells kind of the whole sprawling story of the First World War and uh, so many facets of our efforts. And, and that's, in a sense, no accident because the selection of these eight men to be the body bearers of the unknown soldier, they were very specifically chosen to represent a broad sweep of our, of our war effort. Uh, and, and so, in a sense, because of that careful decision made uh, almost 100 years ago, uh, that is why this ultimately serves up such an ideal framework for you to write the book that you did. Indeed, General Pershing had a real sense of fairness. He wanted to um, he wanted to have everyone, the major participants in each of America's branches of service, as well as the combat speci- specializations, uh, be represented at the ceremony. And the voices of each one of these body bearers, um, you know, captures that. The book also captures a ninth man who is a Chicago native. Um, Edward Younger, and in this, and Edward Younger was chosen to be the man that to select the unknown soldier, and it was, you know, in many ways, kind of um, an accidental uh, situation. The um, going back a little bit in 1920, major Allied powers, uh, France and England, had both um, decided that there needed to be. An unknown soldier would represent the sacrifices of all the other soldiers that had fought in the war. And it would also be a, a way of sort of closure to some degree. And America had about 2,500 Americans that were unknown. These are men that had, um, you know, their remains were, you know, this is brutal, brutal combat in World War One, where high explosive artillery shells would just, you know, shred um, human bodies. And you know, there were remains of, of Americans, but they were not identified. The great hope was initially that there would be some way to identify all those people. And um, it didn't happen. And event- essentially, there was pressure, um, including um, the, the editor of The Delineator, who was um, a woman, an uh, extraordinary woman, that really set the, the stage or spearheaded the effort for an American unknown soldier. And there was a decision then made. Um, Congress passed um, a bill or an act to, uh, to, to con- construct a tomb. And then there was a decision made to select the unknown. Um, and uh, in France, there were four major cemeteries that were uh, of Americans that were where Americans fought. 
and um, they 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 pulled the unknown soldiers out of four of these cemeteries. They had four bodies. They moved them to Chalon, France, and the night that the, the the unknown was to be selected, a brigadier general from the American army was going to do the selection, but the French said no. Um, in, in our selection process, we used an enlisted man, and there were several men that were um, that were honorary pallbearers or body bearers at that ceremony, and they selected Edward Younger, uh, a Chicagoan who had served through the the entire war in some of the bloodiest battles at places like um, outside Bella Wood um, at Blancmont which is a which is an, an amazing fortress the French could never crack for four years. But the Marine Corps and the second division took it in about two days. Um, and he was given the, the honor of selecting the soldier. And it, it's really quite an extraordinary uh, story. He was given a bouquet of white roses and escorted into the room where the the remains of these four Americans were under flag-draped caskets and given the instruction of, of, of selecting the, the man. And he walked in the room, and he felt um, a guiding presence that the person that was in the one of the coffins was one of the men that had died next to him. And he lay the flowers on the top of that casket, and that, that became the unknown soldier. Mm-hmm. The other three men um, were then uh, interned in France. Their graves are still there. And um, the unknown was then brought um, across the Atlantic on the USS Olympia, which still is it's Admiral Dewey's uh, flagship from the Spanish-American War, which is still in Philadelphia. Um, and uh, they then they went through the, the body bearers that are in this book, um, brought him home uh, to Arlington. And there's just so many extraordinary stories within that, that ceremony including the last uh, person to say anything, um, who was Chief Plenty Clues, um, a Plains uh, war chief that was given the honor of placing... Whoop. of placing his, the, um, the, his war staff on the top of the casket. An extraordinary moment and uh, and a great honor, of course, to be to be part of that. You also tell us, and of course, our listeners can explore your book to learn even more of these details. But the extraordinary lengths to which the military went to ensure that the unknown soldier would, in fact, be unknown—that there would be absolutely no way uh, for the specific identity uh, of of this particular soldier to to ever be known. And it's really kind of intriguing to think about just how important that was to them and the uh, the, the extraordinary lengths to which they, they, they went to, to, to make certain that they would be unknown and that everybody would know that these were absolutely, that it, this was an unknown soldier. Because if they were careless about that particular matter, uh, we wouldn't have an unknown soldier to honor, and in a sense, the honor that w- it was meant to, in a sense, bestow or convey uh, would would really be uh, diminished greatly. 
but I, I so appreciate the, that, you, that you explain all of this in, in such thorough fashion. The, 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 um, there were so many hidden memoirs or things that I unearthed in this book, including the, um, the officer of the Graves Registration Unit that was tasked with, with largely um, unearthing the, the, the bodies of the unknowns. And his memoir shed light on how the, the, the process that they used. And they, they went through and carefully removed um, these unknown soldiers, made sure that there was no dog tags or letters in their pockets that could identify the individuals. And then the, the actual um, the cards that they used that, that marked these individuals and then the specific grave location that they had in the cemetery in France was burned. So there was no way to actually figure out who they had selected. Um, and then it, it goes through the, uh, the process of, of bringing the, this unknown home, which is you know, quite an extraordinary story. We're speaking with Patrick O'Donnell about his book, The Unknowns, The Untold Story of America's Unknown Soldiers and World War I's Most Decorated Heroes Who Brought Him Home. By the way, can you explain this whole notion of the unknown soldier? Uh, you've already touched on the fact that this, in a sense, was not an unprecedented sort of honor uh, to bestow uh, can you trace for us at least briefly kind of the history of kind of the concept of an unknown soldier being honored? The the origins of, of the unknown soldier really comes from, from Europe, where France and later the United Kingdom selected um, soldiers that were unknown uh, to honor and then also to, to really to provide a, a, a means of of memorializing the sacrifices of all of those who had fallen in in battle, and you know there were millions of casualties during World War One. So this was a chance to to honor those that the, those sacrifices from those individuals. And for the United States, um, it took us about two years before we really we sort of followed suit. But it was a it was all. It was such a special thing, too. Though it was, a, it was a, it was a means to, to heal the nation, and that, you know, it, it was a means of sort of closure to some degree to all of those who had lost um, Americans in the war, but a sense of healing too. I mean, for instance, the um, Chief Plenty Clues was included. One of the body bearers was a Native American, um, Corporal Saunders, who was extraordinary story. His, he was a combat engineer, but his job was not to build things. It was to destroy them or to breach wire obstacles. These are massive barbed wire, mountains of barbed wire. And his job was to go in with wire cutters and literally clear the way um, as an assault force. And, you know, did reconnaissance, uh, you know, Native Americans, the stereotypes in many cases, uh, the uh, the army, or and the Germans on both sides, the Germans on the other side thought the Amer- American Indian was the greatest warrior on, on earth and practically indestructible. So they were given some of the toughest jobs. They were either scouts or, in this case, with Saunders, their job was to breach the wire. And he later um, was able to capture over 60 German prisoners of war single-handedly. Um, but at the ceremony of the tomb, the president spoke. 
there was the NAACP, and many of the groups within America um, were part of the ceremony. And it was a, a, a sort of coming together of America from all walks of life. And it was one of the first times where a speech by the president was, was uh, broadcast through innovative technology at the time across the country. When I read some of the remarks of President Harding, uh, you, you quote uh, uh, quite a lot of his speech in your book. One of the things that I was struck by was the lengths to which he went to speak about the horror of war. I mean, the horror of combat, particularly as war was fought in that particular conflict. In some respects, the whole notion of how war was waged had evolved to uh, into a new sort of brutality. And of course, in, many people in an occasion like that would have chosen, uh, in a sense, not to go there uh, and would have tried to keep their their remarks uh, within certain lines of, of maybe propriety um, where where you just weren't touching on on some of those brutal details and and actually his remarks are a little more frank than I would have expected them to be but I think it also speaks to uh, the sort of savage reality of the first world war that you just couldn't talk about it uh, in a meaningful way without at least touching on that reality. I wonder if you could say a few words about the way in which this was an especially brutal conflict. And maybe you could especially talk about this this matter of trench warfare to which you devote an entire chapter in your book. I think for those of us uh, so far removed from the First World War, we cannot begin to understand what this war was all about without understanding what happened figuratively and literally in the trenches. I think that many Americans have a misconception or or really a a lack of understanding of of what that war was like. And it's, it's very nuanced and, but it was also very, it was deadly. It's the civil war kind of on steroids. It's it with the emergence of modern technology um, on the battlefield, it makes it far more deadly and battles last instead of days. They can last for weeks or months for only a few yards of, of, of territory. Um, but within this, within that, that horror is also a lot of courage. Um, there's the friendships and brotherhood that these men form. And that comes out in the unknowns as well. It's, there is, there's some extraordinary stories that this book captures of what it's like to, to fight in different aspects of World War One. And, you know, the thing that I that really struck me was the gas. Um, you know, gas warfare comes into its own in World War One, and it's it's extraordinarily deadly. And people have to fight um, through entire battles with a gas mask on. And this is where your eyes are watering. Um, you know, you're you're just being subjected to this stuff. And it's not only gas, but it's like mustard gas, for instance. I really get into that uh, quite heavily. Oily droplets that just gets under the skin and irritates. And can you imagine, like, living through 
a battle where you have to sleep at night with your gas mask on. That's how these men fought. And um, they'd have to actually do combat with a mask on and, you know, your, your lack of peripheral vision um, as you're being assaulted in hand-to-hand combat with German soldiers. And the other aspect of the war that really kind of caught me was many of these men would live in the trenches, which were infested with with rats and water um, and bed bugs and lice, and they literally lived with these 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 parasites and these you know these bugs on their bodies for weeks, and there was no way to get them off. I mean. Just can you imagine how irritating and uncomfortable that is? And then it's also combined with the fact that it, they spread disease. Um, and there is influenza. This is the first real recorded pandemic. I mean, in in modern in modern history, if you will, uh, not not looking at the plague, but it's just it it, it erases the lives. They don't even know how many were killed. Their numbers are between 50 million and 100 million people around the world. And so you're battling not only the greatest army in the world at the time, the German army, you're battering battering new combat technology like heavy explosive artillery shells, there's gas, there's machine guns, there's the trenches. And you're also dealing with, in some cases, American commanders that have not given these doughboys the right tactics to, to counteract that, but they figure it out on their own mm. and they become a modern army. That is the, that, that is it's the quite extraordinary story, right? So it is the ordinary soldiers who make certain connections, who come to a new understanding of modern warfare, uh, more quickly than many or most of their commanding officers do, which is a really sort of scary thing to think about. It's it's a uh, it's it's an it's a story of American innovation, and it's a story of how an army was was at the time before World War One. We were this I mean somewhere between the 16th or 17th largest army in the world behind Belgium, roughly a little over 200,000 um, Americans to an army that that blossoms and grows to over four million that really has a decisive impact Mm. on the the course of the war. I wonder if this is what you meant when you are talking about uh, General Pershing and the so-called AEF, the American Expeditionary uh, Forces, or or the Doughboys, uh, when you call it a saga of an extraordinary metamorphosis. Is that the metamorphosis to which you are referring? It is. It's the story of of being um, to 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 merging from kind of a Spanish American war to civil or civil war army to a modern um, um, a modern army that is um, one of the best in the world, and it carries over in the you know World War One is the seminal event of the 20th century that leads to eventually the American century. And I mean, the, the, the modern army, the modern Marine Corps, are forged in World War I. Hmm. I want to be sure to mention one other matter that I found really interesting in your book. And again, we're just scratching the surface of all that uh, we can explore in your book. Uh, at one point when you are talking about the, uh, the war as it proceeds uh, into late 1918, and 
how General Pershing is at loggerheads with uh, one of his French counterparts. The, the, the problem is what he wants to do or intends to do and what the French want him to do or want the Americans to do. And part of what's going on is that the Allied effort has finally swung uh, in a more positive direction with a counteroffensive at Soissons that, that really, in effect, turns the tide. But then the question then is how to capitalize on that, on that moment where now finally theme, things seem to be swinging uh, in our direction. But how do we capitalize on that moment? Uh, and there is a very sharp difference of opinion. I don't even need you in this moment to, to go into all the details of this of this decision of whether to fight at uh, Bulo Wood or whether to fight at Arg- I mean Saint Michel or whether to fight at Argonne. But it's just so intriguing to think about, even at a moment when the effort is going well, our 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 uh, our our military still face then really difficult choices about how do we build on this success that we have just achieved. I mean, war is hard enough when it's not going well, but even when it is going well, you're still confronted with all kinds of incredibly difficult choices. And I don't think until I read your book had that really dawned on me, that reality. General Pershing had some enormous uh, challenges. One, to build an army overnight and make it a world-class army in in terms of numbers as well. I mean, you know, go from 200,000 to over a million men that are trained, that fight together, it's extremely challenging. And then get them over from the United States to France, another challenge. But, but you know, since George Washington, General Pershing was the first American commander-in-chief uh, in, in France to really deal with international alliances. And Pershing was very good at what he did. The, the, the French and the British wanted to take all of the American units that went to France and basically cannibalize them and put them into their own their own units in the French or the English army as in, in battalion size or company size elements. So they would be under French or British command. President Wilson gave General Pershing one, largely one directive, which was to, to form and keep the American army intact and not let it be, you know, under um, other allied control. And that's what he did. I mean, he, uh, against all odds, there were some instances where the, you know, American units had to fight um, in, in critical situations under French command. But largely the goal of an independent American army was realized by General Pershing. And that was, um, you know, that was under enormous pressure throughout the entire war from the Allies. They didn't want that to happen. I mean, there's, they were, I mean, in some ways, very selfishly um, wanted to maintain control, and in the event of a victory, wanted to be able to claim it for themselves. But then there's also, I mean, at a practical level, there were times in 1918 where it looked like the German army was really was on the verge of success. And you know they, they were they were the Allies were very desperate for any for American manpower. It really reminds us that uh, that victory in the First World War was by no means sort of an, a, a done deal, uh, sort of the inevitable sweep of history. 
this war could have ended very, very differently. And it was such a difficult conflict for us in so many different ways. And it was a conflict that changed the world mm-hmm. and continues to change the world to this day. In so many ways, America made the difference. In in terms of just financial, um, the, the Allies financed, the, the Americans, America financed the war for the Allies. The Allies had, Britain, for instance, only had about a month left of finances before they were, they were completely bankrupt until America joined the war. American material, American cells, American heavy explosives, all of these things, and American manpower, um, you know, made the deciding difference in World War I. You go on to uh, tell us more about the, uh, the beautiful memorial for the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and, of course, also the story of the remains of other unknown soldiers from subsequent conflicts uh, that are also there at Arlington National Cemetery, where all Americans, uh, uh, of course, are welcome to visit and, and pay their respects. I imagine that the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier is a place you have visited many times, and I should also think that you visit it now uh, and, and experience something even more profound than you once did. Just a great appreciation. The, the, the tomb is... Is our is is our greatest war memorial? It in the story behind the tomb. It does. It, it has given me, um, you know, just a great respect for all Americans that have that, that have fought under arms and then have sacrificed, made the ultimate sacrifice. And you know, as you mentioned, the tomb is not. It, it the first unknown soldier is from World War One, but the tomb is also the final resting place for a an unknown from World War II, as well as uh, the Korean War. The book, again, is called The Unknowns, The Untold Story of America's Unknown Soldier and World War I's Most Decorated Heroes Who Brought Him Home. The book is published by Atlantic Monthly Press and the author, Patrick O'Donnell. Patrick O'Donnell, thank you for writing yet another extraordinary book, and thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. This has been a pleasure and honor for me. It's really been a ple- pleasure and privilege for me as well, Greg. I, I always enjoy coming on your shows. You always ask the some of the best questions that really capture the essence of, of the books that I write. Thank you. You're welcome.